We read scripture this morning from Isaiah 46. Isaiah chapter 46. And we read this chapter along with our treatment of the first commandment as it's expounded in Lord's Day 34. Isaiah 46. We hear the inspired word of God. Bell boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy laden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb, and even to your old age. I am he, and even to whore hairs will I carry you. I have made, and I will bear. Even I will carry, and will deliver you. To whom will ye liken me? And make me equal and compare me, that we may be like. They lavish gold out of the bag, and weigh silver in the balance, and hire a goldsmith, and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him on the shoulder, they carry him, and set him in his place, and he standeth. From his place shall he not remove, yea, one shall cry unto him. Yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off. And my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we take up our treatment of Lord's Day 34, question and answers 94 and 95. Found in the back of our Psalters on page 20. Question 94 reads, What doth God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints, or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God. Trust in Him alone. With humility and patience, submit to him. Expect all good things from him only. Love, fear, and glorify him 
with my whole heart so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or beside that one true God who has manifest himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, God is a covenant-keeping God. And God introduces himself to us through the introduction of the law with these words, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Those words reveal the peculiar glory of Jehovah God as God. And therefore the peculiar covenant that God has with his children in Jesus Christ. He is Jehovah, their God. And as Jehovah, he owns his people. He owns them by virtue of his eternal decree of election, the wonder of redemption by which he's made them his own. And God's people then are his peculiar treasure. He will preserve them, he will keep them as his property, and he will bless them, he will take them to himself, and he will give them everlasting life. Notice the beautiful way that was conveyed here by Isaiah to Israel. Note the contrast that was established there in the first verses of, verse, of chapter 46. What are the idols? The idols are a burden to the people. The idols burden the animals. They make it so that the animals are bowed down. They can't hardly walk. Jehovah says, in contrast, I will carry you. I pick you up. I'm not a burden. I'm not one who brings you into bondage. I'm one who lifts you. That's the beautiful idea, verses 3 and 4, which are born by me, are carried And even to your old age, I am he. I'm not going to cast you off. I am going to bear you and carry and preserve you because of my covenant faithfulness and the glorious union that I've established with you. God speaks to us, that beautiful word this morning, so that we're aware of the fact that God is not saying, keep my commandments so that you can enter into fellowship. God is saying, I've taken you into my fellowship. And as those whom I carry, whom I preserve, now here's the manner in which you are to thankfully conduct yourself. To those who are conscious of their sin, those who know the shame of that sin, those who are burdened with the reality of that sin, those who know I deserve God's wrath, I deserve to be cast off, God comes as the living God and says, I am Jehovah, your God. Beloved, do you hear him speak those words to you? And do I? Those words reveal love. They reveal favor. They reveal grace. They reveal a special covenant relationship that he's established with you. It's in that experience and it's hearing those words that we delve into our study of the law. Apart from that experience, we can't study the law. We may seek outwardly to conform to it, but we're not keeping his commandments for the right motivation. We live by faith and the consciousness of what God has done for us. The marvelous covenant relationship into which he's taken us. And then we're compelled by 
thankful gratitude to show forth his praise and to live a life of thankfulness to him. Now the book of Isaiah powerfully sets forth the truth, Jehovah, he is God alone. That's the truth that is set forth by Isaiah. God is sovereign. He's God alone. Especially chapters 40 to 46 are very distinctive in that regard. Repeatedly, God's admonishing Israel. Why are you pursuing the idols of the land? They can't help you. They can't assist you. I am God alone. And I will carry. I will preserve. I will keep you. And in that context, God says, Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. Now, beloved, when you hear those words, and when I hear those words, it ought to cause us to tremble. No other gods. There's no compromise. There's no middle ground. When you stand before that prohibition, no other god, it works trembling within us because we realize how often we fail. We trust in other things. This isn't a word that's merely for the Buddhist and for the Hindus. This is a word for you and for me. I put my confidence in that which I ought not. I trust in someone in addition to Jehovah God. Every single day, I make a God out of money, fame, relationships. I make a God out of medicine, out of my clothing, out of the endeavors that I pursue with regard to my free time, sports, fishing, hunting. So easily it is for me to seek after another and to put my trust in that other and to lean on that other. So that this is a commandment that you and I need to hear as we stand before the living God of heaven and earth who says, no other gods. I am Jehovah. Look to me alone. This commandment causes us to fall on our knees, crying out for forgiveness. And we hear then the beautiful words, too, of our Savior, forgiven. And by faith we respond, I love thee, Lord. Strengthen me so that I live in a manner that reflects my love and devotion to thee, to pursue thee alone. We take that as our theme, noting the first commandment, the basic principle, the prohibition, and the demand. What is the basic principle of the first commandment? Every command says something about God. And there's a basic truth. And the basic truth of the first commandment is this. Jehovah God stands in distinction from every other creature. He alone is eternal. He alone is infinite. He alone is self-existent. All of creation is limited. The creature is dependent. The creature is finite. The creature cannot compare to the greatness and the glory of God. God is God. That's the truth of the first commandment. And from eternity, God had all creatures in his hand and before his mind. So that from eternity, God determined to create the whole world, everything that's in it. He determined to fashion it all according to his perfect counsel. In the beginning, God. And that powerfully sets forth the truth. In the beginning, there was only God. None else. God alone. The principle that this 
commandment then is based on is the very principle set forth here in Psalm 46, especially in verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Jehovah alone. That's the truth that the scriptures impress upon us. Now that leaves room for only two alternatives. Either we worship God alone or we worship no other. A God, an idol, no God. Now some imagine there's another possibility that we could say, well, we don't worship God or an idol. We don't really believe there is any God. And therefore, the atheistic perspective. But the Bible here, through the first commandment, really leaves that possibility out. Either we're worshiping God alone, or we're worshiping idols. That's the only alternative. And if we say there is no God, we're worshiping then the idol, ultimately, of man. But it's impossible for a man to be altogether without a God. Every man, woman, child... Young person has something that they're dependent on, something they're going to worship, something they're going to serve, and something they're going to place their trust in. Maybe it's the sun, maybe it's the moon, maybe it's animals, or money, possessions, whatever it is. The man who turns away from the one true God by virtue of that sin is an idolater. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Psalm 15, Psalm 14, verse 1 states. And he's a fool because he's not reckoning with reality. The reality of the situation is there is a God. And the heavens declare his glory. The firmament shows his praise. So that all men know that there is a God who must be worshipped and served. But what do men do? As Romans 1 and 2 point out, they turn away from the creator and they worship the creature. Such is idolatry. Now, God created man as a dependent being. Even though man fell into sin, man now stands apart from the image of God and the image of the devil. He still remains a man. And he still, of necessity, must depend on something. If not God, idols. Now, what does a man do who rejects God? The first thing he has to do is get rid of creation then. Because if there is no God, there can't be such a thing as a creator. And so one then goes to work at undermining the biblical truth of creation. Creation did not take place according to the Bible, they insist. Then man becomes proud and man begins to attribute to himself all of the advances and advancements of science and all of the technological advances He tries to be independent, thinking that he doesn't need to have a God. He doesn't need a Savior. He can do everything himself. Even though he knows deep down, I can't be. And he knows that when he faces judgment, there's going to be a judge who's going to hold him accountable. But he suppresses that knowledge and unbelief. The powers of nature repeatedly reveal and declare the majesty and the glory of God. And that makes it all the more important than for natural man to deny the creator and to try to find an idol. 
Now at issue is the need to worship Jehovah and Jehovah alone. There are those who would outrightly deny Jehovah. But far more common, the violation of this commandment takes place by those who say, Oh, I believe in Jehovah, but also I put my trust in other things. In other words, they deny alone. And beloved, that's where it pricks you and me. We believe in Jehovah, but are we putting our trust in Jehovah alone? Of course, we worship God. But are we worshiping God alongside idols in our lives? Whatever those idols might be. Now to make this more practical and more true to our experience, many Christians hold all kinds of different ideas about God. The truth means very little to them. And straying from the truth then, they would be inclined to say, you believe how you believe about God, I'll believe how I believe about God, but we're still all serving the same God. We're still all going to get to the same place ultimately. Beloved, that's a mockery of the first commandment. God says, I am God. And now we desire to know who is that God. And so we delve into his word. We study the Bible. We want to have a right depiction of the glory and the greatness of this God. So that if we understand the nature of this commandment, we desire to confess Jehovah as God alone according to his revelation. So that the believer who believes in the living God and serves the true living God desires not to know God according to my will, according to my word, but always to be subjecting my will and my thoughts to God and to his word. I may think this is what God should be like, but when the Bible says something different, I need to submit to what the Bible says. I don't want to confess any idea of God that would be detracting from or denying that which he has revealed in his word. Any unbiblical perspective of God, I can't embrace. It's unacceptable. To have a wrong conception of God is then to worship Jehovah God not in the manner that he would desire and not to glorify and exalt him as he ought. And that's idolatry then. I've fashioned an idol of God in my mind. And very diverse are those idols. That God is a God who loves all men. A God who desires the salvation of all men. And so that idol is established contrary to the clear testimony of who God is as to his love in his word. The Bible teaches God's love is particular. God's desire is the salvation of his children, his church. But the idolater says, no, that's not the God. I don't want a God who would send people to hell. I want a God who loves everybody, a God different from that. And so he forms his own fashion and his own mind of who God is. These errors get at God. They get at his counsel. They get at God as to his being, and they promote then a lie. That's not the God of the scriptures. And so, jumping ahead, we're going to understand. Keeping the first commandment has to do with this fundamental truth. I want to know God rightly. 
And it commits us then to a whole life of study of God so that I don't make any error with regard to my knowledge of God and so that I know who God is. I know his word in all of his fullness and I glorify him as he sets forth in his word. Obedience to the first commandment is a life of reformation. It's a life of reforming my own ideas so that increasingly I am in accordance with God's word and God's will. Now this understanding of the first commandment makes very clear that I am an idolater. Can I stand before God this morning and assert that I know God fully and that I'm serving and worshiping God in every respect as he desires and I'm honoring him alone in my life? Again, I'm pricked. There's always room for improvement. There's always room for growing in my understanding and appreciation. There's always room for exposing areas of my life that I'm not submitting with regard to his will. So that, beloved, the point is this. You don't need to carve out of wood some kind of idol or chisel it out of stone and load it on your beast and carry it around in order to be an idolater. You don't even have to have an idol in your home to be an idolater. Idols are conceived in our own mind. They're fashioned simply as that which stands at the center of my life and that which governs the decisions I make. What is it that is at the heart of your life and is dictating the decisions you make? Is it your health? Is it your job? Is it another person? Is it your own will, your own desires? What is it that controls your outlook on life so that your attitude every single day, your outlook is affected? Is it Jehovah God alone or not? That, beloved, is my goal and that is your goal. As those who know the wonder of his covenant friendship and fellowship, I desire that he alone be worshipped and served and adored in my life. And that everything else then is cast off, forsaken, for the sake of him receiving all glory, all honor, and praise. A failure to do so, beloved, is to fail to know true joy, to fail to know happiness in our lives. If we're trusting in God and all of these other things, or some of these other things, there's not going to be joy. There's not going to be happiness in our lives. We're not living in the conscious wonder of God's covenant friendship and the thankfulness we owe to Him as we ought. The fundamental principle then, Jehovah, He is God alone. And as such then, He's sovereign. That means He controls everything as Lord and King of all. He is full, complete, power over everything in the universe without exception every single thing in your and my life and he works everything according to his good pleasure he has the right to tell us what we must do what we may not do he has the right to dictate the circumstances of our lives he has the right to do with us and with our lives whatever he pleases because he owns us we belong to him He can take from us our spouse, our loved one. He has the right to take from us our children. He has the right to do whatever he wants in our lives because he is Lord. He is sovereign. And he has this right by virtue not only of creation, redemption. 
He has this right because he loves you and he loves me. And he knows better than you or me what is necessary in our lives. He knows better than us what is preparing us for the glory that awaits. And so we bow before him. We submit to him as the sovereign God of heaven and earth. Again, how often do we not rebel? We think, but, but I know better how this part of my life ought to be operating. And therefore, what's the fruit of that then? The fruit of that is uneasiness, despair, anger against God and against God's will. There's no joy. There's no happiness. He is not simply a Lord. He's Lord. And all things are in his hands. And we look to him then as the one who alone is able to control and direct everything. And we don't understand his ways. We don't need to. Because we know and believe that he is God and that he loves me with an everlasting love and that he's carrying me. He's the one that's bearing me up. And even to the hoary hairs will he carry me, as verse 4 points out. He will bear me and he will deliver me. Where? To the wonder of glory in the heavenly life. This God is ruling over all things for the sake of his glory and his people and their salvation. He's a personal God. And he insists then, no other gods. You don't need any other God. Why would you want another God when you have me and I am the one who loves you with an everlasting love and who is bearing you up and carrying you and the one who will bring you to the fullness of glory? He's not the God of fate who's vague, impersonal, just says, well, you can't control tomorrow, so therefore don't be worried about tomorrow. He's not the God of evolution. He's not the God of Mother Nature. He is God, Jehovah, a personal, distinct being who has embraced in love his people and who now is governing our lives according to his perfect sovereign plan. No other gods, he says to you and to me. Now, what does that mean? We look at the prohibition. The catechism says to contrive or have any other object in which men put their trust. In the Garden of Eden, this was the fall of Adam and Eve. Even you children remember, what was it that the devil said to Eve that tempted her then to take that fruit? You shall be as gods. An idol was set up in her heart that she could be God. Don't worship God alone. Don't look to God alone. Satan said, look at yourself. You can be a God. And so that you can still have God, but now you have yourself as well. That was the beginning of idolatry. And the catechism references that idolatry when it says, as much as I love the salvation of my own soul. There we lost the salvation of our soul. Why? Because we sought an idol. But now we seek the salvation of our own soul because we love God alone and we know what great things God has done for us. Now, gross idolatry is practiced in every nation of the world. Some excelled in this abominable practice. The Greeks had 3,000 gods, idols. The worship of pagan gods has been associated with the most revolting of impurities, godless celebrations that were carnal, 
The worship of idolatry has also been associated with appalling cruelty. Cruelties that are hardly able to be imagined. The depths of human depravity are revealed in idolatry. Human sacrifices, gross immorality. Idolatry serves the flesh. It does not serve the glory of God. The three great gods of the heathen throughout all ages were Moloch, and then Baal, and then Mammon. They are all worshipped today with a continued feverish devotion. Moloch degraded men to unspeakable cruelties with human offerings. Parents sacrificed their children. That was Moloch. That continues today. Fathers and mothers sacrificing their children. Doing so with the murder through abortion of those children, the abuse of their children, the giving up of their children for prostitution, grossest idolatries, using their children for themselves and for their own pleasure and for their own accomplishments. Moloch continues to have his hand in American society. Multitudes burn their incense to the god of Baal today, the god of impurity, the god of licentiousness, the god of pleasure. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are accepted in America and in the world around us. Tragically, even in churches, so that men and women now are given over not only to the pursuit of the god of Moloch, but the god of Baal. And then there's mammon. Esteeming man, esteeming the pleasures of this life. Just as Israel danced around that golden calf of old, so men and women dance around their money, their pursuit of riches, the worship of the God of gold. It crushes this age. It brings greed. It brings about all kinds of sin. So that we have economic collapse because of the banking collapse. More is going to come. Greed and covetousness cannot sustain an economy. And such is the spirit of our age. Mammon and the worship of mammon. Now the sinner by nature will not put his trust or his confidence in Jehovah God. He will serve an idol. And the reason is simply because, again, the service of God presupposes a relationship of love. The only way that we can put our confidence and trust in God is to know the wonder of the love that God has for us. And that's possible only because of the wonder by which God works regeneration and new life in our hearts. Natural man stands against God. He doesn't have that relationship of love. And in the experience then of that hatred toward God, he's not going to trust in God alone. He's not going to put his confidence in God alone. He's only going to feel that God is his enemy. And the first commandment, therefore, puts its finger on the weakness of our human nature. We are prone to put our trust 
in all kinds of things apart from the living God. And so constantly we need to hear this reminder. Jehovah alone. Jehovah alone. With all our heart, we have to put our trust and our confidence in Him. Look to Him in prayer. Lean on Him. Know that He is the one who loves and cares for you. Know that His will alone is good. And look to Him. Constantly, in our sinfulness, we're inclined to put our trust in the things of this life. When we become prosperous, we're tempted to attribute to ourselves. It's because of the good decisions we've made. And we become, become proud. When we experience adversity, we put our trust in men often. Looking to men, looking to the state, looking to the government for help. The government is not helping us look to God. The government tries to bring us into a dependence on the government. And so that we begin to look to the government for assistance. And we have to be alert to that. How many ways doesn't the devil try to use means so simple and basic to draw us away from putting our trust in God alone? We're experiencing troubles and difficulties, maybe sickness, and we're inclined to put our trust in doctors, medicine, the things that this earth has to offer. And what's the result of all that? Fear. There's going to be anxiety because this is idolatry. There's not going to be joy. There's not going to be peace. Next to Jehovah God, there is nothing on which we can lean. All will disappoint. We therefore forsake those temptations that are especially strong to the human nature. And the catechism here lists in question 94 a number of them. Idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints. Sorcery is magic, turning to evil spirits. Again, we would say that's not something I'd ever do. But increasingly, this is the kind of thing that's happening. Those who have a serious Terminal illness, for instance, will turn to various other sources for a cure, even becoming desperate at times. And the power of Satan is great, so that some of those cures might even come from him. And we know that the Bible talks about the devil being enabled to do miracles and wonders. Some will be fake, but some may be real. And the devil may actually be pleased to use sorcery in order to to bring about healing. A soothsayer is one who pretends to tell the future by some signs, whether it's palm reading of the stars, anything else. And again, presidents, our presidents in America have been caught up in this. And we recall stories of them daily pursuing such things in order to try to figure out what decisions they should be, ma- they should be making. One would think, how would... A powerful individual be caught up in soothsaying. Every state fair has booths, typically lending to this kind of thing. And easy it is to get caught up in superstition, which runs rampant in our day. Not only in pagan religions, but also in America, even in our own sinful natures. And this is evident again, even from the construction industry. Companies will not build the 13th story on a building. There will be no 13th story. Why? Superstitious. 
In other places, there won't be certain floors on hospitals. There won't be certain rooms in hospitals that are numbered. 13 is an unlucky number. Companies dread launching a new product on a Friday, and typically they won't do so. All kinds of indications again in our society, modern society of superstition. The invocation of saints is a clear condemnation of the Roman Catholic practice of venerating saints and angels. The Roman Catholic Church, as you know, makes a distinction between what they call dulia and latria, both references in Latin to worship, the idea of worship. Dulia, they say, is worship that's offered to Mary, to angels, to the other saints. Latria, on the other hand, is worship that is only to God, to Jesus Christ. Now, there's no basis in the Bible for that kind of a distinction. The Bible emphasizes worship God alone. God is God. No one else is worthy of our adoration, our worship. And so they, violating the clear testimony of the Bible now, address the angels and the saints as if they're the same or even, in some regards, more than God. They ascribe what belongs only to God to the creature. And that becomes then idolatry, worshiping and serving the creature more than the creator. Others serve a supreme being, the grand architect maybe they talk about of the universe, or a god of nature, or mother nature. None of these are the god of the Bible. They're another god. And all these are rooted in ultimately this, a denial of what God has revealed to us in his word. Who is God? Don't live by feelings Don't live on the basis of what you desire. Live on the basis of God's word alone. Don't live by gambling and pursuing luck and lotteries. Live on the basis of God's word. And so we renounce and forsake all creatures. The idea here is not that we may have nothing to do with the creatures of this earth. God gives them to us and he commands us to use them, to eat of them, to make use of them but we may not put our trust or our confidence in them. Now, money is a creature in a sense. Money is a good gift from God. We may have money. We may have much money, but the warning of the Bible is the love of money. That money is not your own. It belongs to God yet. God entrusts it to us to be used in his service and for his glory. And while the love of money is the root of all evil, that causes us to do some heart searching then. So quickly, so easily, we put our confidence in money, in our possessions, our stocks, our real estate, our investments. They become our idols and we begin to lean on them and we look to them. And evidence of that is this. When they're taken from us, what happens? We're devastated. We're moved to depression at times. We become filled with anxiety. Where's the joy? Where's the trust in God? God is the one who teaches us, seek me and glorify me alone with what you've been given. But some modern forms of idolatry also show itself in our lives. Perverted reason. We think in a manner that's not in accordance with God's word or God's will. 
And the devil always has used perversions. But we would say today, those perversions are becoming all the more prominent. You shall be as God. That same lie that he gave to Eve in the garden is a lie that continues to prevail. You shall be as God's. That's the lie the devil repeats again and again to exalt self and to dethrone God. In the thousands of years, 6,000 years after the fall, man continues to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man has attained much knowledge of evil and has attained profound reasoning. It would seem as though that man has even attained some of that which is the devil's intention and devil's promise to be God. And so men act that way. The accomplishments that men have attained to are remarkable. Modern science, modern teaching, push that. Look at what man is able to accomplish. Look at what man is able to do. Man is the pinnacle of creation. Man is the one who's the crown of evolution. And so when we're sitting in college classes, when we're reading an article in the paper maybe, we're watching television, all we're hearing is, man, how great man is, what man can be do, how man is promoted with his agenda, as though man is everything, and man is capable of doing whatever is necessary to prolong life, to solve all the problems in life. Remember, beloved, the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. God alone is God, not man. Then there's the God of pleasure. If the old Greek and Romans could come back today and see the parties that take place in our day, they would believe that the worship of the gods is continuing. Men are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And this is the kind of idolatry that seduces all of us, but especially our youth. The thought of work, that's far from our minds. Six days thou shalt work. They want a life of pleasure. They want a life of pursuing what they want. And they're tempted then to forget God, condemn his worship, violate his laws, and follow after the lusts of their flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Life is for me, and life is about pursuing what pleases me. There's the God of gain. Many sacrifices are offered up to the idol of gain. Not to God's glory, but to the worship then of money, the pursuit of wealth. Again, the promotion of what man is able to have in terms of earthly possessions. And the fame and the glory of this world is idolized. The favor of man is treasured for more than the favor of God. The things of this world more important to you than anything that God has to offer. And so men and women are willing to do what they know is not pleasing to God because they want to secure the favor of someone else. What does that prove? Man is an idolater. Rather than doing what God wants me to do, I'm willing to do something else because of the influence of someone who's directing and guiding me. And I care more about that person and what they think about me than what God thinks about me. There's the God of sports. Most of our young men, boys, could rattle off maybe the starting lineup of basketball, baseball teams. But could we rattle off the name of the 12 apostles? If we would read the Bible as avidly as we 
devour sports. We would know so much more about God's Word than merely the 12 disciples. And our Bible studies would never lack for even more enthusiasm and edifying discussions. To know God and to know the Word of God like we know and like we give ourselves over to the pursuit of earthly knowledge. There's the God of science, the God of discoveries. If science says the world is billions of years old, then the creation count must be cast off. We would hold to science, they would say. If science says Adam wasn't a real man, then we go with science. We throw out Genesis 1 and 2. If science says there's no possibility that a serpent could talk, we throw out Genesis 3. That can't be the case. If science says a virgin cannot give birth, we toss out Luke 2 and Matthew 1. Such is the temptation and the tendency of men and women. We thank God for the tremendous advances in science. But we don't put our confidence, we don't put our trust in them. We look to God and we look to His Word. And finally, it's easy, beloved, to idolize our loved ones. God knows how close and strong earthly relationships are. And those earthly relationships can become that which we then make an idol of. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, verse 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. By nature, our love is so twisted that we would defend our children above God. When our child does something that is not right in God's eyes, we're willing to defend them above the will of Jehovah God. What idolatry, beloved. We're putting creatures above God. We must guard ourselves against doing so in any area of our life, whether it be with regard to our husband, our wife, our parents, our children, our relationship to God is first and foremost. What then is the demand? Learn rightly to know the only true God. Why are we here? The primary reason for your existence and mine is to know God. And that's what the first commandment sets before us. You need to know God. You need to know God as your creator. You need to know God in the fullness of his revelation. You need to devote your life to the knowledge of God as your creator, redeemer, and your covenant friend. Now we know there's an intellectual aspect to that. There must be more than that as we're aware. Even the devil knows God in that intellectual way. But God works faith in our hearts so that it's a knowledge of faith. And it's because I know God already. It's because God has put that love in my heart that I want to know more. I attend to the preaching. I study His Word. I want to grow in my understanding and appreciation for His place in my life. So that what is it that governs the whole of my playing, my working, my relationships, all of my decisions? I love God. And because of my love for God and my knowledge of God's will and God's way, that's what's going to be foremost in everything that I take up. To know God and to grow in my knowledge of Him. How am I displaying that, beloved? How are you displaying that? Is that occupying just a couple minutes of your day? Or is it that which is the consuming principle that governs your life? To know God 
is everlasting life. And so we seek to know God through the preaching, through the catechism, to know God through the study of His Word, to know God through the creation that is all about us. We want to know God in the fullest sense that we can according to His will. We're not content to be lazy and say, but you know, I was taught enough. After all, I made it through school, I made it through catechism. That's good enough. That's not the child of God who knows and loves the first commandment. We don't hold the knowledge of God in low regard, believing it doesn't really matter if we, if we maintain it. It doesn't really matter how we live in accordance with it. Now, of course, we understand there are some aspects of the Bible that have to do with truths that are essential with regard to our salvation and the unity that we enjoy as a church of Jesus Christ. Other matters are more secondary. We understand that. But the temptation in our lives is to make more and more stuff secondary. Everything that touches the nature and the being of God is primary. It's essential. Who is God? We must be willing to devote devote as much time and effort as we have in the pursuit of that desire and question. And be confident that my knowledge of who God is is a right knowledge of God. It's in conformity with his word. And I'm always reforming and always striving to understand and confess more fully the greatness of his glory so that I can love him, so that I can show my thankfulness to him in all that I am. The way to know God is through Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. God reveals himself through his own son. And in this life then, I need fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Where do I find that primarily? Jesus speaks to me through the preaching of the gospel. He speaks to me through the administration of the sacraments where Christ is present spiritually with his church. And so I pursue those means in order to grow in my knowledge and my understanding about God. Never may we have the attitude, we don't need to know more about God. We never may have the attitude that we toss aside the knowledge of God that we've received, even though it's biblical. But that's the temptation. New circumstances come up in my life, new situations, and now I say, you know what? I used to think that was wrong. Now, no, it's not wrong any longer. Did God change? Or am I making an idol now of my own imagination, my own thinking? Those in whom the Spirit lives says, I want to know him. He is my light and my salvation. He's the strength of my life. And therefore, I open my Bible. I devour the word in order to know him and put him first in my life. To know him and to trust in him alone. Looking to God in the face of Jesus Christ, we know he loves me. He forgives me all my sins through the shed blood of my Savior. And I put my confidence in him. I know that everything is going to work together for my salvation and for my advantage. I know that he's going to give me grace in all the trials to bear me up. He's carrying me. He's holding me. And I patiently lean on him on the basis of his word and his promises. I trust in him. I fear him alone. What is my prayer? Have thine own way, Lord. I'm the clay. You're the potter. Have thine own way. And we believe the work that God is performing is for his glory. He's all wise. He's all knowing. He's working everything together for good. 
And we would rather renounce all creatures in our lives than walk contrary to his will. We're willing to face the wrath of men, even their murderous anger, because we love God. And we're doing what God wants us to do. We're willing to stand alone if necessary because we know God. We love Him. And with humility and with patience, we submit to Him. Now, beloved, God has placed us in the midst of a battle. And by His grace, we wage then a valiant battle against idolatry. Our nature battles to uphold our own ideals, to hold, uphold our own thoughts about the way that we should live, the way that we should conduct ourselves. We know we shouldn't watch so much television, but we're going to not submit to God's will. We're going to do it anyway. We know that children are a blessing, and yet, boy, I have one, I have two, I don't know if I can handle three. We know that God will provide all of our needs, and yet we refuse to put him first in our giving and in our life. We know God hates backbiting, he hates slander, and yet we keep doing it anyway. Every one of us, beloved, in one area or another, are giving heed to that sinful nature, walking contrary to God's will. That's our idol. We're placing our own will above God, and we know better. Will I submit to God or not? You can't have God and mammon. God says, Jehovah alone. That's the only way of peace, the only way of joy. The first commandment is strongly antithetically, antithetical. Either you cry out for mercy, you renounce your own will and humbly walk with God, or you maintain your rebellion. And you say, no, I'm loving myself, I'm going to live for mammon. Beloved, by God's grace, we turn. By God's grace, we confess. Jehovah alone. We repent of our idolatry. We cry out for mercy. Lord, forgive us and give me the grace to break down my own idols and to serve thee with all my heart. And beloved, what is the fruit that the catechism talks about? Expect all good things from him only. Love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart. Love isn't just an emotion. Love is above all the grace that God has worked in us in Jesus Christ. And it's the love by which we fall before our Lord and our Savior. And we confess, my Lord and my God. And we long for the perfection of heaven and for the glory that awaits. Confessing, He is Lord in all my relationships. He is Lord in the home, in the school, in the church. He is Lord. He sees my heart. And I seek to know him more fully, and to lean on him alone. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us the idolatry of our natures. Forgive us the pursuit of our own will and our own pleasures. And work in us that humble acknowledgement. Jehovah, he is God. And work in us the grace to submit and to live thankful, obedient lives in the service of our Lord and King, to know the joy and the wonder of that friendship and that communion, now and which will endure to all eternity, as thou art the one who does not bring us into bondage, but holds us and carries us and brings us into the fullness of the joy that awaits. For Jesus' sake we pray.
Amen.